My guest today is Dr. Marsha Bionarud. Dr. Marsha Bionarud is Professor of Geology and Environmental Studies at Lawrence University, Wisconsin. She is the author of Reading the Rocks, the Autobiography of the Earth. The title of her recent book is Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. Dr. Marsha Bionarud is with me on the phone line. Marsha, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Asim. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Marsha, before we discuss the concept of deep time, uh, geological time scale, and various rhythms of the Earth system, uh, please uh, tell us about yourself, uh, about your education, and about your research interests. Well, like many people, I came into geology almost by accident. Here in the U.S., we really don't have much rigorous earth science or geology in the high schools. And it wasn't until I arrived at university that I first encountered geology as a distinct and rigorous intellectual discipline. Um, and I think for me, the appeal was it had such vast explanatory power. I had always been in, interested, for example, in word origins, the etymologies of, of common words and phrases. And in some way, geology to me seemed like the etymology of the entire world. It could explain how things came to be. And there's a great satisfaction in being able to look out at the landscape and literally read it. Um, so I, I took an introductory course in geology almost by accident on a whim and, and got hooked. And then I was lucky enough um, in my graduate work to do work in the high Arctic region of Norway, an archipelago called Svalbard, um, and do some really very primary research there that delineated the nature of the rocks. It's really the extension of the Caledonian mountain belt that runs right through Ireland, through Scotland, and up the coast of Norway um, to the high Arctic region, and do some of the first detailed geologic mapping there, which I think um, made me a kind of generalist in a way that's becoming rarer these days as the, the field has become much more um, divided into sub-sub-disciplines. And today I teach a, what we call here a small liberal arts college, um, where students have a, a very broad course of study. Um, they get a, a Bachelor of Arts degree, although they can major or focus in the sciences. But we, we focus on training the whole person, and all students, no matter what their focus is, um, will take a certain amount of the humanities, as well as sciences and social sciences and even fine arts during their course of study. So. Um, this is a place that we we really educate the whole brain. <laughs> and I think in many ways, geology fits very well into that paradigm. Uh, Marsha, you are a structural geologist. What is structural geology? Yes, it's not something that means much to people from outside the field, but it's the field that really focuses on the architecture of the crust. Um, how, in particular, tectonic processes wrinkle and fracture um, the outer shell of the earth, the crust. Um, and we use a variety of techniques ranging from real-time monitoring of earthquakes, of course, but also satellite um, direct monitoring of plate motions to looking at very ancient tectonically active areas, even in places that today are far from plate boundaries. Like here in Wisconsin, we are well in the middle of the continent. We are 
virtually seismically inactive today, but at one time even our part of the world had a great mountain chain, and today we can study the, the guts of that mountain chain that have been conveniently delivered to the surface by erosion. So it's a field that is concerned with the, the nature of the crust as a mechanical unit on the outside of the Earth. In your publications and presentations, uh, you discuss the concept of deep time. Uh, what is deep time? Well, that's a phrase I should credit to the, the great writer John McPhee, who evocatively described geologic time as deep time. And I think it's a very beautiful way of thinking about time as, as a literal dimension, a kind of geography that for most people is, is largely unknown. So it's, it's the million or even billion year timescale that geologists habitually think on. And for me, and I think many others in the field, we really really do feel like sometimes in the geologic past are places. I, I was in the field yesterday with students in the Ordovician. <laughs> I, I feel like we, we traveled to another place. So it's, it's another dimension of, of Earth. In one of your recent publications, uh, you suggest that geology is like augmented virtual reality and that through the lens of geology, you can see Earth structures changing and evolving. That's absolutely right. I think more than anything, thinking geologically is, is to put on a kind of, um, it's, it's to see the world through a lens that allows you to see many earlier iterations of any place. I often feel like I don't just live in Wisconsin, but many Wisconsins, <laughs> and I can sense the presence of all of those earlier versions and, and sort of travel in my mind's eye back and forth between them constantly. And it really, for me, it enhances my sense of where I am. That's true of, of every place. Once you get to know its deep backstory, you can imagine that those places are still in some way present. Uh, you uh, discuss various rhythms uh, that regulate various natural processes and earth systems. Uh, and then you suggest that it is very important that we understand the rhythms that span over millions of years and regulate earth systems uh, such as formulation of mountains and uh, deserts. Uh, tell us about some of these geological rhythms. Right, and there are so many different rhythms embedded within each other. So there are the very long-term cycles of, say, a supercontinent being constructed and then rifted apart. I'm sure many listeners have heard of Pangaea. That's just the latest of a series of supercontinents that have formed and then been rifted into pieces, and then a new one has reformed. So that would be happening on something like 500 million-year timescales. But, of course, we have many other um, cycles on Earth. I think one of the things that really distinguishes Earth from other planets is this capacity for cycling and recycling that has kept the planet on a on a steady state for a long time. We have cycles of water, cycles of carbon, of sulfur. All of these things are remarkably complex and they operate on a wide range of timescales and we are embedded within these. Some are far beyond our control or even nothing that we do could really affect them, while others, certainly like the carbon cycle, are profoundly affected by human activities. The title of your recent book is Timefulness, 
how thinking like a geologist can help save the world. Uh, does the term timefulness relate to our ability to understand uh, these large-scale rhythms? Yes, it does. It, it's getting some sense of temporal proportion, I think. Um, I think for many people, they have some inkling that the Earth is old, but don't have an appreciation for the intrinsic time scales or durations or rates of some of these many different natural processes. Some, again, are very slow and beyond any easy human comprehension, although we can, we can quantify them. Others are not so slow, and I think geology has perhaps overemphasized the largo tempo of the earth. Some things do happen slowly, but there are other things that happen very quickly. And there are also asymmetries in some processes. For example, evolution is generally rather slow, but extinction is sudden and sometimes abrupt. Um, generally speaking, in the climate system, planetary cooling happens rather slowly, but planetary warming can happen very quickly. So I think some inkling of the characteristic rates of Earth processes is, is really critical for the average Earthling to be an informed citizen and make judicious choices that will ensure a stable future for us. And, uh, and you suggest that it is important for us that we understand these large-scale rhythms uh, to understand our place uh, in this system, uh, our place uh, in the grand uh, scheme of things? Uh, very much so. I mean, geology is an interesting field. <laughs> this is an indirect answer to this question. It's got a very pragmatic side. It's about oil and gas and groundwater and resources that we need. But it's also got a very philosophical side. And I think we need this timeful attitude for both. We need to understand how our rates of consumption of resources match up with or don't with the rates of accumulation of these resources, how quickly we could deplete them and, and make our lives very much more difficult. And then I think this timeful attitude, this understanding of our place in time can also feed us spiritually even. It gives us a better sense of who we are, where we came from, and where we're going if we can have a realistic view of our place in the continuum from the geologic past into the geologic future. My view is that many of the sort of neuroses and other bad habits and mindsets of the modern world are based on our sense of isolation on what I call the island of now. We don't have a sense of connection to the past or to the future, or we don't give much thought to the future. We're, we're very... Um, myopically focused on the current news cycle, the latest app, the meme of the moment. And what we don't realize is these are very, we, these undermine our humanity in some profound way. And I maybe naively believe that if we had a better sense of our connection to the natural world, we would feel better and we would treat the planet better. For our listeners, uh, would you give an example of a large-scale rhythm? Hmm, there are lots to choose from, but maybe I'll, I'll talk about mountains a little bit. It's, it's my field. I'm, I'm fascinated by the growth and the dismantlement of mountains. Um, to most people, a mountain belt, the majestic peaks, seem 
timeless. <laughs> but to a geologist, again, um, we, we recognize that there are a record of processes initially being constructed, but almost as soon as they're being pushed up by, say, collisions between two continents, erosion is acting to tear them down. And I think it's one of the most remarkable things about the Earth that the internal heat engine of the Earth, which drives tectonics and dictates the rates of plate motion, that set of processes is about equaled by the external processes on the surface of the Earth, erosion driven by gravity and also by the weather and climate system. And that energy is really coming from the sun as well as gravity. Those external and internal processes are equal and opposite in many ways. And that doesn't have to be the case. Um, we can look to the planet Mars, for example, that has some of the solar system's largest volcanoes, even though Mars is really kind of a tiny, rocky planet. Those volcanoes have been dormant for a billion years, and they look exactly the same as they have when they were formed a billion years ago. So Earth is really a remarkable planet in having these commensurate forces of construction and destruction, of cycling and recycling. And I think if people appreciated what it takes to build a planet that's been able to sustain itself in a relatively steady state for as long as Earth has, we might start paying attention and, and trying to model our own human systems after these very durable geologic ones. How does a thorough understanding of uh, these rhythms and these Earth uh, processes enable us to treat our planet better? How does this encourage us to look after our Earth? Well, I think more and more the one rhythm or cycle that we need to understand is the carbon cycle. Um, if we take a long planetary view, Earth is as habitable and pleasant as it is because there is a mechanism that over geologic time has taken volcanic carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is the, the primary source of our atmosphere originally, and locked it up in the form of limestone. And I know in Ireland you have some really famous limestone cliffs. We should all give a word of thanks every single day of our lives to limestones because that is the place where Earth has sequestered carbon over the long haul. It's locked up about 99% of all of the carbon in the surface environment away in mineral form and thereby prevented the Earth from becoming a runaway greenhouse planet like Venus. What humans have done in the last century and a half or so is taken long stored carbon from fossil fuels, of course, and put it into the atmosphere without any kind of commensurate locking away um, of that carbon. It's just accumulating more and more in the atmosphere and increasingly also in the oceans. And, of course, that is the, the cause of our climate crisis today. So if we would take a page from the Earth's book and have the idea that we can't just have one-way um, ejection of the carbon into the atmosphere, but we need some kind of recycling or at least curtail our emissions so that Earth's natural rates of recycling um, could take care of it, we'd be in a much better position. But at this point, human emissions of carbon dioxide outstrip those of volcanoes by something like an order of 50. And so we can't count on Earth's background habit of locking up um, carbonates 
carbon in limestone to, to take care of our mess. And ironically, the rate of precipitation of limestone is actually decreasing as the concentration of carbon dioxide in the oceans and the acidity of the oceans is increasing. So we're, we're even undercutting the very mechanism that Earth over the long time scale has used to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So you suggest it is important to understand uh, these processes and you also emphasize that human activities are interfering in the working of these rhythms and earth processes? That's right. I mean, the earth will keep doing what it's doing and what we're forcing is, is a change in um, the balance of some parts of these cycles. And we've seen times in the geologic past with, with no human intervention where sometimes these biogeochemical cycles have gone quite awry. <laughs> and often these are times where the biosphere suffers because suddenly the, the rules change, the climate changes suddenly, ocean chemistry changes suddenly, and organisms that had adapted to the old regime don't fare well. So one reason that all of us should know more about the geologic record is it does offer some cautionary tales about what can go wrong when you force changes too quickly on the Earth system. And, and certainly most geoscientists think that the rates of change, especially in atmospheric chemistry and ocean chemistry in the last 150 years due to human activities are almost unprecedented in the geologic record. Uh, so the view that global warming and climate change are part of uh, large-scale geological processes and that in the long run, the Earth will heal itself, uh, this view can be challenged by presenting evidence that it is human activity that is uh, interfering uh, in the working of Earth processes and it is human activity that is causing climate change uh, as these rhythms uh, are not functioning as they should function. Right. So, again, the Earth has come through some crises in the past, but often these are ex associated with mass extinction events. And I think that the message that people should take home is it's not the planet that's going to suffer. It's going to be us. We humans like to have predictable climate. We like to know that our crops will grow because the weather will be pretty much like it's been for the last few decades. We'd like to know that we can have a consistent source of water that we've always relied on so our people can, can live. Um, and so the danger, I think, sometimes people, and including students in my classes, say, well, the Earth has been through this before, so what's the big deal? The big deal is that we humans count on the constancy of nature, and we are pushing some natural systems to the point where they will behave in erratic and unpredictable ways. You suggest that geology is a hugely important discipline, but it does not get its fair share of acknowledgement and appreciation. Uh, talk to us about this view. Well, I think geology does have a public relations problem, um, partly for the reasons I mentioned before, that we are very much tangled up with extractive industries, the oil industry, mineral industry, but also because in the public's mind, it's associated with sort of dusty mineral collections. And then among the sciences, because it's, it's very much an applied science, it's not got the purity of physics or chemistry, say, 
um, it's it's in the hierarchy of the sciences never been <laughs> held in quite the same esteem. There's no Nobel Prize in geology. But in fact, geology is a very rigorous and challenging discipline. And I think more and more scientists from other fields are coming into the, the geosciences and realizing there are, there's an urgent need for all kinds of scientists to apply their brightest minds and their um, technologies to the study of the Earth system, which is immensely complex, and it takes many different strategies to investigate it. But I have to say that in the traditional um, echelons of science, geology just doesn't, doesn't have this prestige that, say, physics does. And uh, can we do something about it? I think we can. <laughs> I think if everyone began to appreciate the complexities of Earth processes, um, they would recognize that this is probably the very most difficult science, <laughs> and we need to bring to bear all of our resources in, in understanding this planet better. We have now found a number of exoplanets, planets outside our solar system. Uh, we are studying these exoplanets, and we are also studying planets in our solar system. In your view, is Earth different? The fact that it is a life-friendly planet, is Earth unique? Or do you think uh, soon we will find planets that are very similar to Earth? That's a good question. And now I, I, I lose track of the tally. It seems to grow day by day. I think we're up in the thousands of, of exoplanets that have been spotted. And what we're seeing is that um, not all solar systems look like ours. There are certainly um, some that seem to have Earth-sized planets, but some of these may not, in fact, be rocky planets like Earth. We also see what people are calling super-Earths, which are possibly rocky, but um, much larger. And so far, because we don't really have a lot of detail, we can generally tell their mass and make some inferences about composition, and we can certainly see distance from their suns. There are a tiny handful that, that look like maybe they could be Earth-like in terms of orbital distance, composition, and size. So it's, it's interesting. We haven't seen too many planets out there like us, but of course, we've only inventoried a tiny fraction of all the possible planetary systems that are out there. In our own solar system, certainly Earth is different. Um, it's just big enough to have retained an atmosphere um, and water over the long term. It's far enough from the sun that it's not just a, a roasting planet. But I think more importantly than these things that were sort of bequeathed to us from the start are the habits, if you will, that the Earth developed relatively early on, which are, in fact, these cycles, like plate tectonics, which is a way that the Earth recycles its crust, the water cycle, which includes not only the surface of the Earth, but the tectonic system itself, um, the process of subduction that is the way ocean crust is recycled back into the mantle, actually carries a tremendous amount of water into the mantle. Probably there is an ocean's worth of water in the interior of the Earth, which keeps recharging the interior with water that is then released again through volcanoes. So these very long-term habits of recycling have been critical to maintaining um, Earth in the habitable range of temperatures for at least 3.8 billion years, which is a remarkable thing for a planet to, to be that clement <laughs> for, for that long.
course, there have been blips, but overall, it's been a very pleasant place for a long time. Uh, some scientists uh, have suggested terraforming Mars. Uh, they suggest uh, we can change and control uh, the climate of a planet and we can make it uh, life-friendly. As a geologist, as a structural geologist, what is your view on such ideas? No. <laughs> I think um, anyone who has spent any time studying the history of the Earth and understanding the complex links between the biosphere and the atmosphere and the hydrosphere and the solid Earth and how the Earth's current state of an oxygenated atmosphere, an active hydrosphere, and a pleasant and stable climate overall have come to be just <laughs> can't imagine how anyone would think in a couple of centuries we could possibly transform a planet with a completely different evolutionary story into something that would support us comfortably. More than that, I think it also suggests a degree of ignorance about human history in thinking that we could cooperate internationally over many generations to undertake such a project with no immediate economic payoff, I'm skeptical. Uh, coming back to Earth uh, with the same question, uh, a number of scientists have suggested controlling the climate of planet Earth by undertaking huge engineering projects uh, such as uh, spraying certain chemicals in the upper atmosphere of uh, planet Earth. Uh, what is your view on such ideas? Right. So I think you're referring to some of these ideas um, to sometimes it's called geoengineering or climate engineering. And, and one of the proposals has been to mimic what um, some volcanoes have done when they've erupted violently in the last few decades, which is to spew huge amounts of sulfur dioxide into the uppermost atmosphere, the stratosphere, where these particles of sulfur dioxide act like tiny mirrors and actually reflect sunlight back out to space. So when uh, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines erupted in 1991, we actually did see a couple of years of um, a plateauing of the otherwise steadily increasing global temperatures. And this was attributed to the short-term effect of sulfur dioxide particles reflecting heat and light back out to space. So some people have thought, well, we could do that. We could um, take high-altitude aircraft and, and spray sulfur dioxide particles um, into the stratosphere and, and create a kind of um, umbrella, in a sense, for the Earth or a mirror. Um, the problem is it would not solve the underlying problem of climbing carbon dioxide levels. And, in fact, um, over time, you would, once you began such a project, you would have to continue to do it indefinitely, if you stopped, you would have a huge kind of um, catch-up effect in, in greenhouse warming. You would go from a planet that had been cooled temporarily by this sulfate in the upper atmosphere to one that then suddenly could warm in a matter of a decade by <laughs> several degrees. So it's a, it's a frightening proposition, and I think it would be a, a very dangerous, slippery slope because the immediacy of the concern about global warming would be taken away. In addition, the um, sulfate aerosol cooling effect would have no effect on ocean acidification, which can contribute to the collapse of the global ocean ecosystem. And we have 
no clear sense of how this sort of manipulation of the uppermost atmosphere might have a ripple effect throughout the whole global climate system. And this could wreak havoc in some parts of the world. Some parts of the world might see increased rainfall, while others might see drought. And we really have no regulatory framework for who should be in charge of such a, a thing. So I, I see this as a dangerous, it's a tempting silver bullet kind of solution to the problem, which is really just too much burning of fossil fuels. And so it's, of course, attractive because we'd rather do something that doesn't require us to change our lifestyles in any way. But I think I and most geoscientists just see it as a, as a really dangerous folly to think that we could do this and there wouldn't be unanticipated ripple effects. Your books, Reading the Rocks uh, and Timefulness, cover a number of interesting topics and outline a number of interesting concepts. Uh, your online publications are also equally fascinating. In one of your online articles, you write about Earth's magnetic field. You discuss how studying rocks from different periods in history uh, informs us about various properties of Earth's magnetic field. Can we study past changes in Earth's magnetic field by studying rocks? Yes, yes. In fact, rocks have a very good memory. Some types of rocks have a very good memory of the magnetic field at the time they formed. Um, studying the remnant magnetism in especially volcanic rocks, basalts, um, like you have in, say, the Giant's Causeway, um, was actually the key to plate tectonic theory. It was, it was observations of magnetic signatures in rocks that, that unlocked the key to seafloor spreading. So many rocks can lock in the ambient direction and magnitude of the magnetic field at the time they formed because they have tiny magnetizable minerals, like the mineral magnetite, um, and as long as they haven't been reheated above a certain temperature, they will remember literally what that magnetic field was like. So that's one way we can track the motion of um, plates around the world um, because the magnetic signature will be a function of their latitude. And so we can tell quite a lot about the behavior of, of the magnetic field over time. The magnetic field is sort of this unseen um, attribute of Earth that people don't think about too much. No, not too many of us use old-fashioned compasses anymore, but it is hugely important over the long haul because it protects us from a lot of space weather and cosmic rays that would otherwise bombard the surface of the Earth. So without the, the magnetic field, Earth's surface environment would be a very hostile one. And by studying past changes uh, in Earth's magnetic field, uh, can we extrapolate these findings to predict any possible future changes? Yes. Well, you probably know that the Earth's magnetic field's polarity can actually flip back and forth. This is one of the observations that, that really was the key to understanding the process of seafloor spreading and, and plate tectonics. So we know that sometimes, <laughs> for poorly understood reasons, the outer core of the Earth where the magnetic field is generated, um, undergoes some kind of change in the way that it's, it's moving around through a combination of convection and motion that's dictated by the rotation of the planet. And rather suddenly, at least geologically speaking, um, magnetic north can become south and south can become north. 
Now, we've not ever experienced one of those changes in human history, but we can see that this has happened many, many, many times in, in the Earth's past on a very irregular basis. It doesn't really have a consistent cycle. The last time was, I think, about 700,000 years ago, so sometime back in the Ice Age. Um, it's comforting to note that we don't think these magnetic reversal events are associated with mass extinctions, even though they probably are times when the overall field strength is lower. They don't seem to um, be linked with, with animals dying off in large numbers or getting lost. <laughs> But it would probably be very, very disruptive to modern technology if one of these reversals happened because our electromagnetic grids would be profoundly compromised. And so there is some interest in this. I, I don't lie awake at night worrying about a magnetic reversal, <laughs> but it's, it's certainly something that has happened many times in, in the past, and it would be very disruptive to us if it happened today. Our best guess is, is that it happens over a timescale of centuries, so if, it, if one did start to happen, we'd have to learn to live with it for quite a while. Uh, do we know how frequent uh, were these changes in the polarity of magnetic field uh, in the past? And uh, do we know how long were these periods of flipped magnetic field? It could stay the other way around, yeah. So it's it's been this polarity about as much as it's been in the opposite polarity. It just keeps going back and forth. We have a, a very high-resolution record of those reversals going back to about um, 170 million years ago or so, because that's the age of the oldest ocean crust that still survives that hasn't been recycled into the mantle. So before that, we don't have quite as continuous a record. We can look at older records on... Um, the continents of, of rocks of different ages. But we know that over the last 170 million years, there have been dozens and dozens of these reversals, some of them um, happening on short time scales, again, geologically speaking, maybe under 100 million years in any given mode. But then sometimes long periods, there was one in the Cretaceous period of about 40 million years with no reversal at all. So it's a very erratic, chaotic system. And um, Reversals have been modeled in some supercomputer simulations, and it just seems to be a, a chaotic system where a small perturbation can grow and then suddenly lead to a, a shift in the, the system. Although I am very tempted, uh, but I won't go into the realm of uh, science fiction. <laughs> Are there scientific studies that focus on the question that if the magnetic field flips again, how will it impact us? How will it impact uh, the civilization? Um, that's a good question. I don't know of any studies that specifically address that. I know there have been studies that are similar in that there are, there's concern about disruption of the electromagnetic grid from large solar flare events that would be rather similar um, in their effect. So either weakening the magnetic field or having a very large electromagnetic disturbance coming at us from the sun would probably have rather similar effects. And I know that has been studied because that's a much more likely scenario. Another interesting topic that you cover in one of your articles is about finding evidence of a huge tsunami that occurred about 70,000 years ago. How do we find evidence of such events by studying rocks? Well, in that case and in others, um, if there are anomalous rocks on 
islands that that otherwise are have very uniform rock types and these things are found high up on hillsides and certainly couldn't have been transported there by humans there's really almost no other mechanism other than terrifyingly huge tsunamis to hurl these rocks um that high up so we know in um in the United States for example in Hawaii we can see the whole flank of the Kilauea volcano which is, you know, a very active volcano and one of the largest in the world. Um, the the recent eruptive activity, I don't know if people have been following it there, but that was all along a huge landslide scarp where much of the flank of the volcano is is slipping into the sea. And there's pretty good evidence that many of these giant hotspot volcanoes have sometimes failed catastrophically and in the process displaced a lot of ocean water which then sent giant tsunamis traveling across open ocean long distances and that's that's been observed in in a number of places that have huge piles of <laughs> lava that have um really kind of become oversteepened and then they suddenly fail gravitationally and can trigger these tsunami events coming back to your book timefulness that encourages the readers to pay attention to large scale rhythms and to the functioning of earth processes how would you encourage our listeners now to observe and pay attention to such rhythms and earth processes well i think it's tuning the eye to see landscapes and rocks as verbs not nouns they're records of events that have happened in the past and we can enjoy them i can enjoy them aesthetically too and i think that's important but then i can read them more deeply as well i can see that they took time to form and some of the time scales are comprehensible decade to century scale changes in the land rivers are you know an example you can really see changes along most river systems in human like time scales but then larger landscape features like the grand canyon or great mountain belts so those start stretching our imagination a little bit more but but once you start becoming attuned to the fact that all of these things have evolved that we too are products of long-term evolution every cell in our bodies is an archive of evolutionary information i think it does change your perception of who you are and i find it something that enhances my experience of being human. I don't find it alienating. Sometimes people tell me that thinking about geologic time just feel, makes them feel diminished. But I think we should shift our perspe- perspective a little bit and and realizing realize that if we understand these stories, it includes us. We're part of this long great narrative too. And I'm just hoping that that shift in perception might also shift our habits and our economic systems even <laughs> to recognize that this is our home and if we don't take care of it um it will evolve in ways that we may not like Dr. Marsha Bunerud thank you very much for being with me it has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show Likewise thank you so much Wasim it was good thank you and uh, goodbye Thank you so much you had great questions bye bye